Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the program, we welcome Director of Global Macro, Urian Timmer, for his weekly commentary on the markets and what macro themes are moving the markets right now. On this episode, Urian talks about Bitcoin, valuation versus growth, earnings, and the tech bubble. Urian talks about Bitcoin's endurance and uniqueness and its maturity. He touches on the impact of tech companies and says this tech bubble doesn't resemble bubbles of the past. In the early 70s and late 90s, the premium of the top 50 stocks over the bottom 450 in terms of P.E. ratio was close to 100%. In other words, the P.E. was twice as high on those stocks. Today, we are at 30%. In terms of inflation, Urian says there are concerns about reaching the close to 2% target. Looking at long-term inflation rate of change, the five-year rate has gone from 2 to 3, but to reach the 2% mark year over year, marks must dip below 2 to reach that target. Also per usual, Urian will be sharing some charts, so please head to at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. This podcast was recorded on February 26, 2024 actually quite a lot to cover, but can we dig right into, is it looking a little mid-cycle-ish? This is is an interesting question because we've been a bit stuck at late cycle for a while. Yes, this is one of those examples where the economic data um, says one thing and the market says another. And, you know, you generally don't want to ignore the market with the caveat that the market can be wrong, right? I mean, in October of 2007, the market was very, you know, staying something very different from maybe some of the economic data were, including an inverted yield curve. And lo and behold, it was right, you know, at the cusp of the global financial crisis. So the market's not necessarily always correct, but it's we're in an interesting, um, you know, fork in the road because the market is saying something very different. And, and I think exhibit uh, A in that is slide five, which we'll just get right to maybe the best chart of, of the half an hour. This is a great um, chart. Uh, but, you know, I, I've, I've shown this chart many, many times before, and I think it's very helpful in understanding the price action because, you know, when you look at the market's return, no matter what country you're in, um, it's dividends plus earnings growth or changes in earnings plus changes in valuation. I mean, by definition, those three things together make the total return for a stock market. And when you when you kind of deconstruct it in the main components, I mean, dividends tend to be relatively stable. So the main components are earnings ch- changes and valuation changes. And what you can see in this chart, uh, so the blue is earnings, the purple is changes in the PE. You can see that often they're doing the opposite of each other. And actually, if you were to show this as a scatter plot, you it would show you uh, a negative correlation. So, which means that usually, usually not always, but usually when earnings are, are growing, valuations are falling and vice versa. And this is one good thing to, to kind of keep in mind, especially at inflection points. And you and I have had this conversation a number of times now in the last four years where from a, from a cyclical low, whether it was during COVID in the summer of 2020 or two years later, you know, in the fall of 2022, the market will go up in anticipation of an earnings recovery, and but oftentimes that earnings recovery, you know, takes a few quarters to materialize. And so the market 
the price action doesn't really make sense to kind of the the naked eye, if you will. And and so this can be a very confusing thing. So, but the point here, uh, I think that we're discussing is that when you look at uh, the PE going up as it has over the past year, it's up about you know 25% or so, and earnings having fallen, but then starting to bounce. And you can see that if you squint hard enough in the orange bars over to the right, those are the expected earnings. Uh, and by the way, earnings season for the fourth quarter is wrapping up, 450 companies have now reported. And it's been a solid, solid quarter. Solid. Um, you know, yeah. yeah, the expected growth rate at the beginning of earnings season was plus one, and we're ending the earnings season at plus eight. So that's a very significant bounce in, in, in expected earnings growth on year over year for the fourth quarter. So earnings have inflected, and actually, so if we can go back, back to the slide for a moment, earnings have inflected, which means that the market appears to have correctly discounted the recovery in earnings. But, so the, but the punchline is, is here. So if you look at the shadings in the chart, so the reddish shading are recession, the, your typical recession shading, which you see in many charts. The blue is mid-cycle, the green is early cycle. So early cycle is basically the recovery of the recession. Mid-cycle is kind of that sweet spot, Goldilocks. They tend to last a while. And it basically shows, you know, kind of an even keel growth uh, mode without having inflation or interest rates being, you know, particularly worrisome. And then the orange or, you know, kind of shading is late cycle. And late cycle is sort of this frustrating period of purgatory where uh, things are not as good as in mid-cycle, but they're not terrible because it's you're not yet in a recession, but recessions do often follow. And so over the last few years, we've been, at least according to traditional economic metrics, in late cycle, right? The Fed was raising rates, inflation was a problem, yields were, were rising, the PE was falling. Um, and so you've had all these late cycle um, you know, signals there. And that doesn't mean the market has to fall, but it also means that the market generally doesn't go up a lot. And of course, we've had the inverted yield curve on top of that, which is another late cycle signal. But so, but now the question is the market with the PE going up and earnings now recovering, if you go back in that chart and you kind of look from right to left and you look at the times that that has happened, that's never happened basically in late cycle with the exception of 1989 when the market was recovering from the crash of 87 uh, and just before the savings alone you know, crisis hit in 1990. But that's pretty much the only example that I can find. So generally what that's we're cool. seeing today happens in early Definitely. cycle or in a mid-cycle slowdown, uh, which is otherwise known as a soft landing. And of course, that brings you to the soft landing scenario. Right, okay. Well, and and you've mentioned valuations there, but let's let's dig a little bit deeper into them because to, to many, considering where we are and adding to the idea that it's end of cycle, um, valuations are high and, and they've come back in a lot of ways. I guess let's ask about that. Then we'll layer on the AI phenomena and whether that is a phenomena that we need to pull into this whole story. But but first of all, just the idea of valuations themselves. Yes. So um, so the trailing PE for the S and P five hundred is about twenty three, which is definitely not low. Uh, oh, I mean, it's been it's been higher, but it's definitely on the high side. And the forward PE, using the next twelve month earnings estimate, is a little bit lower but still pretty high at 21. But again, it brings me 
back to that that previous chart, which is that the early phase of a bull market will produce e expansion almost by definition because price rallies before earnings. And so we're now at the baton pass, if you will, and maybe we pull up slide 14 to highlight that. We're at the baton pass where earnings now are kicking in, uh, and they are. Um, and so earnings should be doing the heavy lifting from here on. So you see in the bottom panel, that's the trailing earnings growth. And you can see we had an, an ever so small uh, drawdown in earnings in 2023 by only two, two or three percent. And that's now starting to flip. And as you see in the top panel, the, the pink and the purple line, that's trailing and forward earnings per share. And both of those lines are now going up. So depending on how much price rallies from here, um, the PE should at least stop going up and maybe start coming down as the PE expansion is replaced by earnings growth. Uh, so, so we are at that point where we should get some relief on, on the PE side. Uh, but you know, earnings momentum, uh, if, if that's what we can call this, um, is starting to build. And actually that gives the market somewhat of a get out of jail card, if you will, against you know, disappointment over a Fed pivot, which now seems less and less likely. Or you know, kind of you know, hold your nose for for the higher PEs. And it's interesting if we go to slide 13 for a moment. Uh, when you look at the, and I track this, of course, as you know, um, every week I, I track, I get this data from Bloomberg, where they do the bottom-up aggregation of all of the company earnings and the at least the earnings estimates, I should say. And it's interesting that uh, the black line is the is sort of the progression of the weekly estimate for calendar year earnings. So the black line is for 2023. You can see where it looks like we're ending at about minus 2.6. Um, the pink line is 2024 and the purple line over to the left is 2025. And typically, as you can see in the chart, numbers that are kind of, you know, in for the out years tend to be too high. Wall Street analysts are always too bullish. I, you know, I don't know how how they haven't figured this out yet, but but you know, be that as as it may. So typically these numbers come down, um, and that's okay. That just means that companies are guiding. They companies like to you know under promise and over deliver, and so these numbers generally come down. But the pink line, the 2024 number, actually is is you know, holding up pretty well. And again, that's another sign that there is some earnings momentum. And I think that is going a long way to overcoming this this you know lack of a of a pivot party for the Fed. I mean, remember you know months ago, uh, I mean we people were really worried about oh my God the Fed is not going to cut rates as quickly as we want. We need those rate cuts, and that was true at the time because when you don't have earnings growth uh, as we didn't have in 2023. You need uh, you need liquidity conditions to be very friendly, you know, from the Fed, from the bond market. But when you do have earnings growth, uh, earnings basically trump rates uh, if you look at it from a discounted cash flow model. And so the Fed actually now gets a pass a little bit to not cut rates in March or even in June, uh, and the market is okay with that because it's riding this momentum wave of you know of better earnings. And of course, as you mentioned, AI. Uh, certainly has a lot to do with that. Okay, let's come back to that. Um, is the Fed okay for the equity markets doing what they're doing? I mean, there's an inflation story there. Um, the the risk, of course, is that uh, inflation 
has not been tamed. I mean, obviously, the inflation numbers have come down. I mean, the CPI went from nine to three. The PCE, the core PCE went from five, six to now 2.9. So that is an improvement. And certainly we're getting closer to that too. I don't think we're going to get to two, but I, I would say that the Fed's got to be pleased that at least it's you know not five or, or nine anymore. But the risk is that uh, that the animal spirits are being unleashed and that financial conditions have eased quite a bit. Um, and that the bond market, of course, has done quite a bit of the work for the Fed. And that was true in the other direction, but also in this direction. So, you know, the Fed may not cut rates, but if bond yields have fallen and they did from five to about four and a quarter, uh, that is another, you know, signal of loosening financial conditions. So the risk is that uh, three is the new two on inflation and that we never get down to two. Um, and, you know, we we need to do that if if the Fed really is going to stick to its long-term target of 2%, and there's certainly questions out there whether it will, it, it may conclude someday that, you know, three is good enough, we'll take three. But if you if you look at a, at a long-term inflation um, rate of change, let's say a five-year inflation instead of a 12-month inflation, um, the five-year inflation rate's gone from two to three, basically. And so it needs to go back to two, which means that the year-over-year -year inflation numbers have to go below two in order to pull those numbers down. And those numbers are not even at two. So it's definitely um, a risk that the Fed may not be able to cut rates at all, or maybe just once or twice. Um, but again, you know, you look at the discounted cash flow model, earnings in the top, cost of capital in the bottom. When earnings growth is either negative or very slow, changes in the rate, in the, in the discount rate matter a lot. But when you're in kind of, you know, let's say a mid-cycle, you know, expansion and earnings growth is coming through, market's less vulnerable to that. Um, and I think, you know, just coming back to your question about, you know, will the Fed allow this to happen? Um, you know, I mean, Larry Summers last week said, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if the next move from the Fed is a rate hike. And so we can't completely dismiss that. But the Fed, I think if, you know, I think what the market is sensing here, whether it's correct or not, is that there's a real AI boom going on? I mean, that's hard to hard to uh, you know uh, hard hard to dis. So, so, what are your thoughts on the tech bubble? Now, you may push against that. I don't know if it is a bubble, but yeah, your um, thoughts. It's not a bubble yet. Um, when when you look at the Nifty Fifty, and and we didn't get a chance to talk about this last week, but I um, the the relative PE of the top 50. And I know we're talking about the mag seven these days, but the work I've done over the past is over the, on the nifty 50, just because there are, that the original nifty 50 was in the seventies and then we had the dot com. And so uh, we're not in a bubble, uh, not even close actually, because those two other periods, the early seventies, late nineties, the, the premium of the top 50 over the bottom 450 in terms of the PE ratio, was close to 100%. So in other words, they, the PE was almost twice as, as high on those stocks. Today, it's only 30% higher. So we're not in a bubble, which means that this dominant performance is, has been justified by earnings. And part of the AI story, I think, is a productivity story. And, and just to kind of loop back to your question about the Fed, you know, if we have a productivity miracle, and people have been looking for that for a long time, and I don't know if it's here or not, but in theory, the AI boom would create more productivity because companies would become much more 
efficient. They would have more free time to do cool stuff rather than grunt work, you know. And so that's kind of the, the hope. And if that's what happens, then the run rate of a stronger economy without producing inflation goes up. I mean, by, by definition, if productivity is going up, that means the, the, the speed limit for the economy uh, goes up, which means that the Fed actually doesn't have to raise rates at all because you would just have more non-inflationary growth than you otherwise would. But, you know, there's a lot of ifs in there, but that is the path to the Fed saying, you know what, we're, we're okay with this. And, you know, it definitely harkens back uh, the, the vibes from the, the second half of the 1990s, you know, when Alan Greenspan stuck the soft landing in 94 and the market went up 37% in 95. I mean, there's definitely some deja vu here going on. Yeah, and and momentum. I think this is your line, but it's uh, it, it can really it can really move. <laughs> That's obviously what the word is. Momentum right. begets right. momentum, um, and and so and this is why we look at indicators like the January barometer, even though they're kind of overhyped. But <clears throat> you know, the January barometer says when January is up. Rest of the year tends to be up, and that's absolutely true. Uh, but it's also true for any other month of the year, uh, and it it just shows you that um, momentum begets momentum, and and that's clearly what we're seeing. And then actually, that brings me to um, where is it? Slide twenty-two. You know, um, my go ahead. Where I want to ask, go. Is it equal weight? Are we going to talk about breath? Yes, yes we are. Um, so the SPW, the S and P Equal Weighted Index, which is probably my favorite. In the index to look at um, is still not at a new all-time high, although in total return terms, it's already 3.5% above its previous high set on January 2nd, 2022. So that's uh, 25 months now since the, um, uh, since, wait, uh, yeah, two years, two years and a month since the market has, since the broader market has made a new high. But you look at this chart and, you know, like, I, do you want to be short this chart? I, I don't. You know, this, this to me shows like a stair-step pattern of impulsive rallies followed by frustratingly long trading ranges, but which then end up becoming a base to launch the next rally from. And to me, the last two years and one month looks like a, looks like a big base. So we're 0.7% away from making a new high. Um, and I think that that high is coming. And as we had talked about earlier in the year about um, markets making a new all-time high after a bear market, uh, you know, often the generals lead the soldiers and the soldiers kind of lag behind, but they do end up following. And obviously, small caps are sort of in that camp. They're still significantly below their high. But I think new highs are coming, uh, which does not answer the question whether the broader market will outperform the MAG-7, but I do think it answers the question whether they will at least join the party, and I do think that that's in store. Fascinating. Okay, lots of questions uh, coming in here. Some of them you've just you just answered right there. One of the questions is on is on uh, cryptocurrencies and specifically Bitcoin. So I wonder if we can jump there. We'll we'll come back to some other things, but really interested in some of the dynamics. There. This question is, what is the valuation model for cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin right now? We know lots of spot products have come onto the market in the U.S. It's kind of interesting. What, what are you seeing? So I, I've, I've done a lot of work on Bitcoin, much more so than other uh, digital assets. And, you know, I think it's it's fascinating because it's uh, it's like a religion, you know, but uh, but the ETF has has allowed that 
religion to go to the masses, if you will. And so let, let's, uh, I'll run through a couple of charts here, but let's start with 11. And, you know, so Bitcoin has, so Bitcoin is probably the most unique asset or aspiring asset that I've ever seen. Although I think we can move away from calling it aspiring because it's been around for a decade and a half. It has survived literally every, <clears throat> every existential threat and it's still standing and thriving. So, you know, I don't think we can call this a fad or a bubble anymore because when bubbles right. burst, they, they don't come back to life and Bitcoin keeps coming back to life. So this chart shows <clears throat> the price of Bitcoin and in the purple is its network. So these are uh, the numbers of non-zero addresses, uh, which is how I define uh, Bitcoin's network. And then that smooth curved line is just a, a power curve. It's, it's like a little Excel regression. And it's amazing to me how well Bitcoin's network, its adoption um, has continued to follow a simple power curve. And so that that exponential demand curve is a very important dimension, of course, because as you see anywhere in tech, whether it's Apple or Google or you name it, um, the size of the network is very important, right? I mean, people always ask me, why doesn't someone just invent a new and better Bitcoin and that will then replace the old Bitcoin? Well, it's not that easy because the Bitcoin network is now so big uh, that it's almost become immutable. Um, and so, the, so that's one part. The other part, of course, as we all know, is the supply scarcity. And if we can go to slide 23, um, I've done a lot of work on that, a lot of which I published uh, last week. And so if you're following me on Twitter or LinkedIn, you will, you will have seen this. But, you know, the, the, so Bitcoin, of course, has a predefined um, supply scarcity every four years, the the rate of growth of new production uh, gets cut in half. Those are called the halvings. And we are actually about to have one uh, in April of this year. And previous halvings have had a very large impact on price. That's the gray stair-stepped line there. It's called the stock to flow, uh, which measures the number of years it would take to replace the current stock of Bitcoin, but you can also apply it to gold and any other commodity, real estate, you name it. Um, and so that line just keeps going up into the heavens, which I think is, you know, very unrealistic because at some point the, the new growth, the, the growth rate of new production is going to be so small relative to the outstanding supply cap that it's just not going to move the needle in my view. Um, but for me, it's a combination of demand and supply. And so the yellow line there is my my supply valuation curve and the three uh you know the purple pink and blue lines are three different versions of my demand approach using historical s curves and what they all have in common is that you know they're up and to the right so i do think bitcoin has has more upside potential but what they also have in common is that the bend in the curve from kind of straight up to more gradual up is where we are now. So I think it's very plausible that future gains are going to be a lot less dramatic than past gains, which kind of makes sense because Bitcoin is becoming a more mature asset and mature assets don't go up, you know, a thousand percent. They act like mature adults and they go up, uh, they go up, but they don't go up a lot. They don't go down a lot. So the sharp ratio can, can stay high, but the drawdowns as well as the upside, I think gets reduced as as, as these assets just become more widely owned and therefore less speculative. And so we're at the bend. And I think that uh, it shows that Bitcoin is sort of coming of age.
Yeah, fascinating to see, to see how some of this is coming through. We're talking about the U.S. election in just a second. A couple of questions here. So one of them is is linking the oil price ultimately. Do you think it's going to impact inflation at some point? And and linked to that in the same question is, can you explain why inflation is not really doing what um, the Fed targets sort of want it to be doing? Yeah, two good questions, obviously related to each other. Uh, so the headline CPI <clears throat> is, of course, heavily influenced by commodity prices, food prices, and so the price of oil will move the needle in a pretty big way. Um, but the Fed, you know, I mean, the Fed certainly will, 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 will look at that, but the Fed is not going to drastically change policy because of what oil prices are doing, because if you think about it, when oil prices go up, it's like a tax, right? I mean, people pay more at the gas station, and and there's an old saying that you know no, no, nothing cures high high commodity prices like high commodity prices because they lead to demand destruction. Um, and so to to be tightening policy because oil prices go up is completely counterproductive. And so it, it, you know so uh, so the Fed note knows all that. So the reason inflation is being sticky is because of services core service. You know there's this thing called the super core index which is kind of really looking at shelter and owner's equivalent rent and stuff it's it's stuff like that that is proving to be sticky um and for you know for for good reason i mean the economy changed because of the pandemic people are are you know people's way of life has has been uh, affected and you know we're in a very tight labor market unemployment's near near record lows people are employed they have some pricing power um, I know in Canada it's a different story than the U.S., but in the U.S., you know, there is no consumer debt bubble, right? The bubble burst in 2008, and uh, consumers in the U.S. are in pretty good shape. I mean, maybe they spend too much on their credit cards, but they don't have these giant piles of household debt uh, to worry about. And so there is there is spending power, and uh, people are spending it on, you know, flights and hotels. I see it because I travel all the time, and like you know that the the inflation the hotel inflation is just mind-boggling from where it was five years ago and so that's why these inflation indices are at the core level are staying very very sticky and that you know doesn't mean the fed's going to raise rates but it does suggest the fed is not going to lower them as quickly as they might otherwise have done um, especially considering we're in this period of fiscal dominance where you know, the government keeps running very large deficits, even though we're anywhere uh, anywhere close to being in a recession. And that's helping keep the economy alive, but also inflation alive. Right. Fascinating. Great. Great answer. Um, so let's go through actually what it means to be at this point in the election. I mean, there, there's a historical story that goes along with it. We've had a weird several years because we've been reopening and governments have spent money. We know the whole story underpinning the economy. Does it make the election cycle of how markets do leading up to within a couple of years after any different this time around? Um, I, I mean, maybe in some ways, um, and we can pull up slide 20 here. Um, you know, elections generally, so I've studied the election cycle, uh, and I have data back to 1789. <laughs> so, uh, be, before there was even a Republican Democratic Party. Um, so I, I've, I've like, you know, turned over the rock, uh, in a pretty, uh, in a pretty good way here. And what I found is that, you know, obviously elections can matter for the economy and the stock market. You think about the regulatory environment, you think about taxes, you think about, 
just policies. I mean, you think about, you know, uh, the Trump administration, uh, you know, unleashing the fossil fuel industry while the Biden administration did the opposite and wants to promote sustainable energy. So you, you, you get tax incentives, you get all of these regulatory changes that obviously has a big impact on certain segments of the economy. But, and as you can see on the left-hand side, so this is the forward two-year annualized return for the S&P. These are price returns because it's hard to get total return data going back to 1789. But for the, for the first two years of a new term, you can see there's quite a bit of difference between the outcome, right? A Republican sweep, a Democratic sweep, some form of gridlock, what have you. But um, over the four-year period, the full term, there's very little difference. Uh, I mean, it's basically 9% per year. And this is one way of, of just saying that the economy is bigger than any election if you wait long enough. Uh, you know, we're in a $28 trillion economy, a uh, $40 trillion stock market. And so, yes, the, uh, the election can matter. Um, I don't think it's going to matter so much on fiscal policy. Uh, because as we just talked about, you know, the deficit is running at about six, seven percent of GDP, and that seems to be a bipartisan thing. And if you think about, if you strip away the stuff that the country, the U.S., has to spend money on, like entitlements, like interest, like debt service, defense, uh, there really isn't much left that is discretionary. So it's there's not really a lot to move the needle on spending. So this is not going to be about fiscal spending this election. It could be about taxes because the Trump tax cuts will sunset in 2027, I think. Um, and so that will, that will be a factor. The overall regulatory environment will be a factor. And obviously social things, which I'm not, don't even want to touch are going to be a very, very large factor for this, uh, for this election. Right, but the, just sort of the position of the fiscal is, isn't necessarily. Um, we will leave it there. We're delighted to see you. Great to get a catch up. And we went through a lot of different points there. Um, Yuri and Timur, thank you for joining us. We'll see you soon. Thank you very much. See you soon. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.